Yeah, so Psalm, Psalm 11. We, we're doing a thing, we, we do a thing at our church called the Summer of Psalms, and uh, we've done it for three years in a row. And um, for us, it's just kind of one of these things where we're, we're really, I guess, word-heavy. Uh, we really value deep teaching in God's Word and, and um, discussing that, getting into the Word, discussing theology, discussing life and these things. We're a word-heavy church. And um, Psalms, it's so good for us to just stop and sit with God's Word and sometimes just to sit in His presence. Um, and so this is a practice that we do every, uh, every summer. It's kind of like our little summer vacation, you know, if you will, a spiritual summer vacation. Just stop be quiet and sit in God's presence and let his word marinate in our hearts. And so um, we're kind of going to do a little bit of that tonight, kind of at the end. Um, and I know that you guys do some reflection at the end of your studies normally, so I'm going to do a little bit of that, but it'll be a little different. So if you're visiting, they do reflection here. <laughs> so be prepared next time you come. Uh, and so we're going to do that tonight. And um, yeah, so... Uh, this is what we do at our church, and I imagine you might do it here as well. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We stand in reverence to God's divine word. So Psalm 11 is a psalm of David, and David writes, In the Lord I take refuge. So how can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked are bending the bow, and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven, and his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests or refines the righteous, but his whole hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, as I was contemplating, which is what I really try to do, I almost try to make these psalms kind of my, my devotion, right? Like, I'm sitting with God's word. I'm thinking through it. I'm really wrestling with it. Now, as I was doing that, Psalm 11, to me, is really about ambivalence, right? It's like, which is often the case with the Psalms, right? The psalmist, he believes strongly about the faithfulness and justice and goodness of Yahweh, very strongly. But these beliefs are again and again tested by what he sees and experiences in the world around him. I mean, Lorenzo was just talking about the, the events of this weekend, right? And how many of us, we come face to face with these things all the time. Uh, Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel. But when I looked at the wicked, when I looked at how people get away with things constantly, how people live at ease and they don't know God and they don't revere God and they practice all sorts of deceit and wickedness, you, you just, you wrestle with these things and, and it's confusing and, and many people lose faith over these things, Right? So the psalmist in this one, he's torn, right? It's kind of like the clash, right? Should I stay? Should I go? If I go, there will be trouble. If I stay, there shall be double, right? Nothing new under the sun, right? He just stole it from David. So he's torn. Does he stay where he is and trust Yahweh to be a refuge for him? Or does he, like he's being told, flee to some mountain stronghold for protection? And I think the question that I really came to, I think what the 
the psalm is asking us, or it's getting us to ask, is the Lord truly a refuge? Can God be trusted? Can he be trusted to be all that he says that he is and promises to be? Will he keep me safe? Will he answer me when I call? Are these just fluffy, meaningless words that I tell myself? Are the scriptures just empty hope? You know, an ancient antidote that I run to, to cope. Can I really trust God with every part of my life? Now, the Psalms, if you don't know this already, they present us with very relatable questions and scenarios, very relatable characters. They're very, very human. They are very frail, right? And I think it really shows us the Bible isn't some out-of-date religious book that has no bearing on our spiritual, personal, or social life today. It is, in fact, the very wisdom of God written down and recorded for us. You know, C.S. Lewis, he once said something like this, uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not because I see the sun, but by it I see everything else. And this has truly been my experience. The more and more I walk with Jesus, the more and more I get into God's word, it it so correlates with life on this fallen planet. It, it connects again and again with me. I, I, I get the psalmist. I get the apostles. They are broken, sinful people just like you and I. And, and I love that. And I often go to the psalms. They, they help me so much. Um, I think sometimes the problem that we have with God's word is, as I mentioned in the beginning, we don't sit with it enough. Uh, maybe, maybe you're like I am, you know, you're very uh, word heavy. You love to take in, right? But you don't really meditate. And I'm not talking about like Baha'i or, you know, Buddhism or things like that, right? I'm talking about just sitting with God's word thinking through these truths and thinking through our lives in, in a significant way. You know, I, I've developed a practice over years where if I open up my Bible, I always have a pen and a piece of paper with me because I want to I record what God's saying to me. I want to write it down. I want to think over it. I want it to marinate. I want to meditate on it. And I think sometimes we don't sit long enough to think about our lives in light of God's word in any deep, significant way. But this is why God gave us the Psalms. You know, it's really interesting. I don't have this in my notes, but there are five books of Psalms, and there are also five books of Torah, right? And so God gave the Jews, he gave them five books of the law, right? They're Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But he also gave them five books of prayer so that as they take in the word, they would also be responding in prayer and worship. And these go together, they're complementary. And this is so important for our lives. I'll, I'll read a quote in a minute that, that's huge. But Eugene Peterson from Answering God, he says this, our habit is to talk about God and not to him. We love discussing God, but the Psalms resist these discussions. They are not provided to teach us about God, but to train us in responding to him. And we do not learn the Psalms until we are praying them. Ooh, <laughs> like how many times have you just read through the Psalms, right? No, the Psalms are actually for meditation and prayer. If you want to understand this to a greater degree, I suggest reading through Psalm 1 and really thinking about it. You know, Psalm 1 actually isn't even a psalm. It's not. It's like, this is how you read this book. It's like an introduction to the book of Psalms. This is how you read this book. Sit with it. Think on it day and night, 
Rise up with it. Go to bed with it, right? Like that's what the Psalms are meant to do. They're, they're meant to, or excuse me, Psalm 1 is meant to do. It's meant to train us in how to meditate and respond to God in prayer. Now, through the Psalms, we learn to be still before God, to think on his word, to mull it over, to allow it to hit us where God intends it to hit us, right? Which is the heart, not just the head. And then to respond in prayer and worship. And always, even in the Psalms, our initial reactions to the word of God are 99% of the time false, wrong, wrong reactions, right? And, And it's beautiful though, because sometimes we're angry with God, sometimes we're frustrated, afraid, bitter, flippant. But while the Psalms allow us to express raw emotion to God, right? It's a, it's a real, a living relationship that we have with God. Just like I've flipped out on my dad and he's not like shunned, done, out, right? We have a real relationship where I can blow up. Blah, 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 blah. And that's kind of the family I grew up in. Like we're not Italian at all. Uh, we are Irish, but we're not Italian at all. But we just like get at each other. And then like, we just got to get it all out. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's talk seriously. You know, like, what do we, what are we really here for? You know, I feel like the Psalms are like that. They allow us to express our raw emotion, but they simultaneously seek to shape them into righteous emotions. And with the psalmist, we can approach God with brutal honesty and yet seek to be submitted to God. It's, it's this shaping and forming that God does with his word. It's this beautiful thing. Now, it is important to sit with God's word and turn it into prayer. And Tim Keller uh, has a great quote here, right, of the reason why. He says this, prayer is the way that all the things we believe in and that Christ has won for us actually become our strength. Prayer is the way that truth is worked into your heart to create new instincts, reflexes, and dispositions. So prayer is the way God works his word and the new life of the spirit into us. This is how we assimilate God's word. You ever heard that, you know, the longest road ever traveled is from the head to the heart? You know, it's like 10 inches or whatever, depending on how long your neck is, I suppose, right? But this is it. This is how you get stuff from your head to your heart. It's through prayer. We assimilate God's truth. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to read through the psalm, and we're really really going to think about that, right? Think about these truths. Now, so David says, in the Lord, I take refuge. And then he asks this question, why, why would you say this to me? Flee like a bird to the mountain, for behold, the wicked are bending the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string. They're going to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Now the foundations of society are destroyed. What can the righteous do, right? It's kind of like this, like, ah, it's this big dilemma. Like, oh, what are we supposed to do, right? All hell is breaking loose. Just get out of Dodge, right? Now, the question I, I tend to ask is, okay, who's talking here? Who is this giving David this counsel? Now, David had many mighty men. He had many great counselors. But some, the person talking here, though a well-intended friend, is misguided. They are telling David, again, to get out of Dodge. They're telling him, whatever hope or peace or rest or security you think you might have, David, in this situation, you are delusional. You need to get out of here, right? And David, he's saying, well, well, I'm trusting in God. Why are you saying that to me? Why would you challenge this trust? Why would you you challenge my dependence and trust in the Lord? And so I think, again, another question in this is, where can true safety be found? Can we be confident in the Lord's care? A question that we asked in the beginning. Now, this psalm, Psalm 11, is strikingly similar to what 
you read in Psalm 121, which is a psalm of ascent, right? As the Jews would make up, excuse me, make their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the feast of the year. This is one of the psalms that they would sing or think over. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in today and forevermore. Now here again, the psalmist is tempted to look up to the hills for help, right? Flee to the mountain because the social fabric is coming undone. There's no safety here. That's the safest place to go. Go up to the mountain. Here again, I look up to the mountains. Where is my help coming from? Same question, right? Now the hills in both of these psalms could represent, uh, I think, three things, really. It, it could be just simply that a mountain is obviously a picture of incredible power, right? I mean, you think about like when Jesus talks about faith and the power of faith in God, that you could say to a mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. Jesus is obviously saying this because this is an incredible thing to move a mountain, right? It is incredibly powerful and strong, right? And so is it a, is it a reference just to power, to security, is it a reference to the fortresses of Israel? I actually had the privilege of being in Israel a, a few months ago with my family. And there are actually many strongholds, as they were called, many fortresses that were up high in the mountains. And this is where you know, Israel's army would go out, and that was the stronghold. That's where they would defend the villages from there, right? They wouldn't have the battle in the villages, but in the plain or you know, near the mountains. So is it a reference to military might and strength and protection? It could also be a reference to the high places where pagans sacrifice to the different gods to gain their favor. So is he looking up to the hill saying, oh, you know, is Baal going to help me? Is Asherah going to help me? Is the god of, you know, um, prosperity going to help me? The god of the harvest going to help me? The god of rain? The god of war? Athena, is she going to help me, right? These questions of where does my help come from? Now, whatever it is exactly, we don't know because the psalmist doesn't tell us, it is a reference to the fact that when we are in trouble, we look everywhere around us for help. Any and every precaution to protect us from danger. It could be ancestral amulets. It could be voodoo. It could be insurance policies. I mean, you know, probably for people living in LA, it's not voodoo. Actually, believe it or not, my wife just sent me this thing, my neighborhood that I live in in Santa Rosa. It's a very interesting place. But this one person's like, Oh, I feel really bad, neighbors, because somebody took my pot off my front porch that my dad gave me, and I put a curse on them, and it's a really bad curse. And so I really hope, you know, that they return it so that, you know, this curse doesn't happen to them. And all of my neighbors are like, oh, that is too bad. I hate when I have to curse my neighbors. <laughs> and my, my wife's like, say what? You know, like, this is where we live, right? They, <laughs> ancestral amulets, voodoo. I mean, the people, my neighbors believe in this stuff. They practice this stuff. They put hexes on people, right? So this isn't too far away. But for us, maybe it's more like insurance policies or it's guns or it's police. It's our own might, right? I work out and that's what protects me and that's what protects everyone around me, right? 
<laughs> That's obviously not me. Uh, it's family, right? Um, man, there's certain cultures, man. You don't mess with family. You know that. I don't have to tell you that. You've seen the movies. It's money. It's whatever it might be that offers us some sort of security, right? So the hills, I see it as a picture of creation and nature at its most powerful, the best that it has to offer, the greatest security that we've achieved as human beings, right? The greatest protection that we can purchase or whatever, right? But you know what? Here's the truth. Nature, the creation, has no love or compassion for you or me. And it cannot guarantee our safety. I mean, you know, you're like insurance agent. Like he says he cares about you and stuff, but it's really about the dollar bills. I mean, like everybody knows that. No, he's not there for like the goodwill of men. He's there because he gets a paycheck and it probably gets a pretty good paycheck and it provides for his lifestyle. Nature, creation, it doesn't care a lick about us. It has no compassion or mercy towards us. Listen to this. Uh, anybody familiar with Annie Dillard? It's like this crazy hippie lady back in the day, and she's like, you know what? Evolution is king, and I'm going to go prove it. I'm going to go live out by this creek, and I'm just going to be one with nature, and I'm just going to experience all that nature has to offer. She spends like, I can't remember, not as long as she planned on spending out there because she was freaked out by nature. Listen to this. <laughs> she says, evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow, but I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. It looks as though the creek is not buoying up, but dragging me down. Look, Cock Robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, the survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, or either of us about the robins. We value the individual supremely, and nature values him not a whit. Again, nature, the creation, has no love or compassion for you. It cannot guarantee your safety. So where does my help come from? I look to the hills. Fly to the hills. That's where safety is. In contrast, Psalm 121 says, God is your guardian. God is your keeper. Shielding you from sunstroke, right? Protecting you from, from the sunburn, right? Or the exhaustion of the heat of the sun. Sheltering you from moonstroke. What? Yeah, lunacy. That's actually what's being talked about here. Like, you know, you know, like you ever hear these kind of things growing up? Like, oh, it's full moon tonight. You know what that means? Like, no, what does that mean? It means craziness is happening. Like, the moon drives people crazy. I don't know what it is, but like that kind of stuff actually happens. And the psalmist is like, yeah. <laughs> like, and you know what? God will protect you. Body, mind, and soul. That's the claim here. Whoa, my notes just disappeared. He will keep you from all evil, it goes on to say. He will keep your life. Now, again, the promise that God will protect body, soul, and mind of his people. He is their keeper. Now, that's what the psalm is claiming at this first point, right? But maybe your experience and perspective is similar to what mine often is. And I, I am a pastor at a church. I've been there for 12 years. I've been the teaching lead pastor for nine years. I grew up in the church. I've been a committed follower of Jesus Christ for at least 16 years, right? 
But this is often the way I see the world or life as a Christian, right? And that's this. God has worked everything I need in the victory of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. God is preparing a place for me in glory forever, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. But in this middle bit, I just live by faith, meaning life sucks, basically, right? Uh, It's just really hard. Sin is still at work in this crazy world, right? Like we just saw on the East Coast. Like, that's how I would see it. I would just be like, meh sucks. Like, life is awful. Maranatha. Like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come set up your kingdom and just like kind of roll with the punches. I shouldn't really expect good things to happen. Rather, I should expect bad things to happen. To expect God to show up in the here and now to deliver me from my fear, sickness, dilemma, or whatever is just unrealistic and wishful thinking. I just have to deal with life. And you know what? There are actually a lot of scripture that I could back this up with. Like we could go like full toe to toe on this and be like, oh, really? You know, I'm gonna challenge your mild prosperity doctrine with my you know, mild uh, you know, poverty doctrine, right? So come on, let's do this, right? And I mean, Abraham, right? Oh, he wanders in the desert forever and he's promised the nations and he gets one kid, you know? It's like, what? what? The math's wrong there, God. Or you've got Jacob, right, who is the promised one, but he has to flee from his family and he wanders and he gets the wrong wife and then he gets the right wife and then he gets these two concubines and they're wrong and it's just this mess, right? There's David who has to flee from his wife, his king, his best friend, the prophet and the temple and he wanders around forever being hunted like a dog. Sucks. It's awful. And like, you know, eventually God comes through and like, okay, and then David dies, you know, like when he's 80 years old and there you go, right? Telling you, it's pessimistic, right? Paul, like we could go into Paul's sufferings. Jesus, you guys ever heard of him, right? (laughs) I mean, like the most perfect man that ever lived and he suffers the death of a criminal, gruesome, shameful, excruciatingly painful, right? First Peter tells us now we have trials. We're waiting for salvation, right? These trials are refining us, you know, and so just you know, just keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's actually good biblical theology. It truly is. But here, this is where this psalm struck me. I'm going to get back to Psalm 11 eventually, I swear. But the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And like when I read that, that this is what happened to me. I got super emotional. Like, what? No. Like, I don't. Why did the psalmist expect that? That he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That he would have lost heart. He would have pieced out. That he would have cashed in. Unless he had believed that he would see God's goodness in this life, in the here and now. He expected goodness from God. Today. Tomorrow, next week, right? That, this question floored me. I'm reading Eugene Peterson's Along Obedience in the Same Direction. Highly recommend it. So good. And this question floored me. It was awesome. I was reading this and I was studying this, but he said this. He says, do you think the way to tell the story of the Christian journey is to describe its trials and tribulations? It's not. It is to name and to describe God who preserves, accompanies, 
and rules us. Whoa, what? I'm a pastor. And I'm like, oh yeah, like life just blows. So just like deal with it. Like we're dealing with it too. You know, just like hang in there. Let's support one another. We go through hard things. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I make you meals, you make me meals. Right? Like, and and that's, that's good Christian like hospitality too, right? But this just floored me because I do describe the Christian life as and it's trials and troubles. I just name them. Just like, oh, list them out. No, he walks with us. He preserves us from all evil. He shades us from the sun and from the moon, and he, he, he preserves us. He loves us, and I was just so taken aback by this. Now, see, David here in Psalm 11, he actually says a very similar thing. It might be hard to see it, but it's there. He believes and teaches God's presence activeness to show mercy and deliver, to judge and reward. Listen to what it says. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests or refines the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, David's reference to God being in heaven is not a nod to deism which it sounds like, right? Like, oh, well, we're just here on earth suffering and God's just way out there in heaven. No, the idea is that God is seated in the heavens, like in the sky, not in some other dimension somewhere removed from the earth, right? No, he's here. God is very near, in fact, sitting on the throne of the universe. You know, sometimes we use these words, right? Like God is actually sitting on a throne in the universe. I hope I'm not like dismantling collective theology here, but I don't think God, personally, I don't think God sits on a chair in the sky. We could disagree on this or whatever. But the idea here is that God is in the seat of absolute power over all things, and he is actively involved in his creation. Have you ever read that verse in the Psalms where it's like, like, we can explain everything by science now, can't we? You know, like, oh, well, the soil does this, and then the grass grows, and if you just add a little bit of mulch and a little, you know, of this, and you break up the soil and this, enrich, you know, uh, in, enriching? That's not a word. Whatever. Make the soil rich, and this will produce, like, these flowers and this crop and stuff like that. And, the, and then the Psalms are like, yeah, God blows and the flowers grow. Like, really? Like, because we do all the things, but really, what makes it grow? The scripture tells us it's God. It's God that gives life to all things. It's his breath that he breathes and it comes to life. God is so intimately involved in his creation. And the psalmist challenges when we doubt that, when we scoff at that idea. He is not in some remote, far off dimension. God's palace or temple is in the very heavens. He is watching the whole earth. He is very near. Look what it says. He is testing the righteous. He's refining them. He's showing them mercy. He's coming to their aid. He is, whatever is happening in their lives is not haphazard, accidental. It is by the merciful hand of God to make them into the people of God, into a people that depend on God, into a people that trust in God, in a people that look to God alone, in a people that truly know that Yahweh is safe, that he is a refuge for his people. God refines the righteous, and yet, the other side, he judges the wicked. And maybe some of us don't like that. God judges the wicked. But I would ask, what would God be like if he did not judge evil? the ultimate power of the universe, 
What it would be like if he just looked at incest and rape and pedophilia and racism and all of these things, and he's just like, yeah, I mean, we've, we've kind of got that stuff going on in heaven too, you know? Sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, whatever. Like everybody comes in, everybody's a part of the kingdom, it's all fine, it's all good. What the psalmist is saying here is, no, God is actually more just than we can possibly imagine. He's more gracious than we can possibly imagine, he's more just than we can possibly imagine, and he rewards righteousness, and he repays evil. And he references Sodom and Gomorrah, not like with the words, but the description of what happens here is verbatim. And now many of us might be, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, we know about them, right? Sexual sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those people, right? You know, actually, yeah, that was there. But you know what? In the prophets, by the way, the prophets are filled with the mercy and justice of God. Filled with looking at the nations and their evil, their greed, their brutality, and calling them to justice, bringing judgment upon them. But I think it's in Ezekiel, God actually describes what was going on in Sodom. And you know what was going on? They were filled with pride. They had such resources. They were wealthy in every way possible, and yet they were the most self-centered people. They did not care for the poor. They did not care for the foreigner. You know, I mean, when you look at the story of Lot, and maybe all of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about here. It's in Genesis, okay? And there's a story of Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, and he goes, and this isn't in my notes. Lorenzo's like, why are you talking about this? And he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's people that come and visit, and you know what? It's so interesting to see. There is no hospitality for strangers or for foreigners in Sodom and Gomorrah. The men of the city, they seek to rape the angels that come to visit Lot. There is no hospitality. And that's what God talks about in Ezekiel. That's the problem. Pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, stinginess. You know what I mean? Like no care for the poor, no care for the outcast, no care for the foreigner, no care for the refugee. God cares about these things, people. He is the God of all justice. And the psalmist reminds us that God does act in the here and now. Sodom and Gomorrah is a judgment that goes down in the annals of history to remind us that God is not just saving judgment for the end. He works and acts in the here and now with mercy and with justice. And again, that's something as Christians we need to wrestle with. We can't just take one and not the other. Now, coming back on track to where I was, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist or a skeptic, but studying through the psalm, I was surprised at its teaching about God's present goodness and faithfulness. God's present activeness in his creation. I realized when God answers my prayers, my groaning, and dispels my fears in the present, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. You know, my dear friends, Jason and Danielle, I've known them now for 12 years. They've been married for 18 years. And for as long as they've been married, they struggled with infertility. Five years ago, they decided to start the adoption process. And oh man, they just went through hell. Paid so much money. 
It looked like it was going nowhere. We were praying and praying and praying with them. And you know what? We just celebrated the birth of their baby boy. He's one years old now. He's been with them for a whole year and plus. And it's like, oh yeah, God answers. I actually have a three-year-old daughter who was born with a congenital heart disease. And she had open heart surgery six days after she was born. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> the most freaky thing that's ever happened to me. And I cried and I cried and I cried out to God. And he didn't, you know, like miraculously heal her or, you know, patch, you know, her arteries right or anything like that. But she made it through the surgery. She is a thriving, crazy little three-year-old. She is the joy of my life. God answers prayer. He preserved her life. That's what I was praying for ultimately. And here she is. She's a living miracle. My friend Christina DePola, she's like the mom of our church. I love her almost as much as I love my own mom. Almost. If you met my mom, you'd understand. And she just got through, gosh, a whole year of cancer. She's cancer-free. And we, like you guys did, we brought her before the church and we just kept praying over her. God, spare her life. You know, chemo just oftentimes kills more people than it saves, right? It's just like, it's so freaky. And you're just like, you know, like we're praying prayers, like, you know, like we're crossing fingers, we're doing everything we can. Do we have to touch people if it's, is it more effective? Do we have, if we have anointing oil, is it more effective? You know, we're doing everything we can, right? To make sure it's as effective as possible. And yet God answers prayer. We never anointed her with oil by the way. God answers prayer. He shows up again and again and again in my life. You know, I, I'm in this situation right now. Um, I've been pastoring this church for nine years. We're getting ready to move our location to a bigger location that costs more money. We have to add staff. Now, I'm going to school. I'm 34. I'm going to school. I don't want to go to school. Like, but I know I need to, and the Lord has like handed this to me, and it's perfect. And I'm so scared. Like, because like I homeschooled in junior high because I lived in Europe and like, so like, I think maybe I have like an eighth grade education, you know? And I'm like, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, you know, like whatever, right? Some, some prayer of mercy. Guys, I, I am continually thinking that God is not going to answer these prayers though. I'm like, oh, we'll move and nobody will show up. We won't be able to pay the bills. Oh, I cry out for a staff member. I cry out for somebody to partner with who can really support the ministry there, who has a heart like I have for God's people there in Santa Rosa. And you know what I think God's going to deliver? Nothing. That's what I think, truly, in my heart of hearts. Why? Why do I think that? When God has been faithful again and again and again and again, when God shows up in the here and now with mercy and grace, with salvation. I mean, we can read this in the scriptures, right? The deliverances of God just are legion. They just again and again and again, and God delivered them and God delivered them and God delivered them and God delivered them. God answers and I'm surprised. And this question, again, as I, as I mold this over this week is, why am I surprised when God delivers? Why don't I expect great things from God? Why don't I expect him to answer? Why do I doubt 
his present goodness and faithfulness. Listen to another psalm, Psalm 123. Why isn't my heart like this? To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Wow. Listen to the psalmist's expectation. What is he expecting? How does he believe God will respond? With mercy. With mercy. Mercy is what? Getting what we don't deserve, right? Isn't that the definition? He doesn't believe that God's going to answer him according to his sins, according to his righteousness, or any of these things, because he's a good, any of this stuff, right? Mercy is how God will respond. He will give me what I do not deserve. Grace, an answer, salvation, help, a friend, the right book, the right passage of scripture, that money in an envelope in the mail mysteriously, right? A meal on my doorstep. That job right at the last minute, right? He will provide these things. So here's a question as we're getting ready to close. Do you expect mercy from God? Do you expect kindness and graciousness? Do you expect God to answer when you're in trouble, to deliver you from your fears? The psalmist is telling us we should. We should, as God's beloved children, we should expect mercy. And the psalm ends this way, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Wow, what a great promise. Here's the problem, right? I think the reason that we doubt or don't expect God's present goodness, the reason we don't expect mercy and deliverance is because we know we don't deserve it. We're absolutely aware of the wickedness of our own heart, of the inconsistencies of our faith or maybe the inconsistencies of our practice, right? To trust God, to live that out in our lives. The Lord loves the righteous, the psalm says. The upright shall behold his face. You know, to behold one's face in scripture is a picture of favor, acceptance, and deep intimacy, right? It's what would happen if a subject was brought in before the king. Would the subject behold the face of the king or would he turn his face away, which was a sign, remove this guy, execute him, throw him in prison, right? What have you. But here it says that the upright, they behold the face. They get an audience with God. They get to enter into his counsel and befriend him, talk with him. Now, the truth is that no human being deserves God's love and his favor. What's being talked about here? The Lord loves the righteous, the upright behold his face. It's like, great. Ugh, what? What a letdown. You know, I think most of you guys are acquainted with this, right? But the Bible teaches that in the beginning of time, God created mankind for face. He created us for fellowship to be in the presence of one another, to walk and talk together, to be in community. But the first humans turned their backs on God. They scorned his gifts and blessings and sought to be autonomous, glorious, and beautiful apart from him. Their turning their backs on God brought sin, 
evil chaos and death into God's good creation. And they had to leave God's presence, we're told. They had to leave the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. Now, everyone that has ever lived has at some point in time been unrighteous, right? Amen? Yeah, every single one of us, right? We've known what's, what's right. We've done the opposite. We've turned our backs on God, right? We've trusted in other things. We've looked to other things for help, right? We have not been upright. Not only that, but we have not given God the righteous life he deserves from us. Every one of us owes to God to center our lives around him in perfect obedience, always remembering him and thinking of him, honoring him. And none of us can do that. None of us have lived that righteousness before God. Not one, right? That's what the the prophet says. There is none righteous, not one. Do you know what we deserve? We've turned our backs on God. Do you know what we deserve? We deserve to have God turn his back on us. And isn't that what we expect? You know, I'm married. I've been married for 10 years. And I'll tell you, in a relationship with someone, (laughs) you do an offense to your spouse, to your friend, right? You offend them in some way. You harm them. um, Criticize them in some way. What should you expect, right? Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. You are so right and perfect and true. And I don't deserve somebody like you in my life to help me with (laughs) my problems, right? Like, is that what you expect? No, right? Whatever you do, expect it to be done right back to you. That's the way it works in most human relationships. That's my timer. I'm almost done. I didn't know that was so loud. Sorry about that. Gave it away. Where was I? Every one of us deserves then to lose God's love and any chance of his acceptance and favor. We deserve to lose face before God. Every one of us deserves to be dismissed from his presence for eternity. God knows this. He knows this. He knows what we have done. It's recorded. He knows it. And because of that, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who lived every moment of his life in perfect righteousness, uprightness, and faithfulness to God, yet God turned his back on him at the cross. What? No, 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 no. It says right here, right? No, God loves the righteous. He loves the righteous. And the upright, they get his face. But you know what Jesus loses at the cross? He loses the love of God and he loses the favor of God. He loses faith. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. What is that? He's lost favor. He's lost face. We sing in that hymn, the modern hymn, the father turns his face away as wounds mark the chosen one, right? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And our question should be, it should be, why would God do that to his son that he loves? Why would God do that to the only righteous man that ever lived? Or the line in the psalm about hot coals and sulfur being the cup of the wicked. Do you know that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. In the prophets, we're told that God causes the nations who are in just wicked, brutal, he causes them to drink his cup of judgment. 
Do you know that on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God and he drank it to the bottom? He lost the love of God. He lost the favor of God. Jesus on the cross was experienced what every one of us deserves, rejection and judgment. But he did this so that we who have rebelled against God and are unrighteous can be forgiven, can be loved, and be given face, God's favor, God's presence. He takes our judgment, we get his blessing. We get mercy, we get grace, right? That's the gospel, That is the gospel. Because of the work of the cross, if we're Christians, followers of Christ, those who trust in his sacrifice for our sins, we can be assured that whatever trials and troubles are happening in our life, they are not because God is repaying us for our sins. But we do that, don't we? Like, oh, I know what this is about. It's not. Jesus paid it all. Whatever is happening in your life, the psalm says, is God refining you. It's not to destroy you. It's not to pay you back for your sins. It's to refine you. It's to cause you to lean into him and say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will never sleep. He will never lie down on the job. He will never forget me. The prophet says, oh, you know, a mother, can she forget her child when her milk is coming in? Even if she could, I will never forget you. I have inscribed your name on the palms of my hands, he says, right? That's the truth of the gospel. We will never be forgotten. We will never be repaid for our sin, our unrighteousness, or our failure. All of that was taken care of by Jesus so that we can and should now only expect mercy from God. When I cry out to God, I should always and only expect mercy because through the work of Jesus Christ, I'm a beloved child of God. Because through the work of Jesus Christ, you are a beloved child of God. Oh, what sweet truth. Listen to this. One more from the Psalms. I'm, I'm probably way over. I'm sorry. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Listen to this, please slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins and he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. No, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his unfailing love toward those who fear him. Again, what beautiful, comforting words. So let's wrap it up, right? What is the psalmist trying to say in Psalm 11? I believe it's this in a nutshell, that though God has worked in the past and promises to restore all things in the future, we can find that in a myriad of places in the Bible, this psalm teaches that our God is also the God of the present visiting sin and wickedness with judgment and righteousness and the upright with blessing and mercy in the here and now. We understand what that means through Jesus, right? None is righteous, no, not one. We have all fled to Jesus for mercy, for grace, right? The psalm knows that Yahweh is involved in life now. 
And they often testify to that involvement. But Psalm 11 is declaring a conviction about this. God's mercy and judgments are not only for the past or for the future. They are also at work for ordinary individuals in the here and now through his radical grace in Jesus Christ. Ordinary individuals, that is what every single one of us are. You are not unique. I'm sorry, you're not a snowflake especially in the kingdom of God. And I mean that in the sense of like, God is not gonna give up, give up on you. You're not that special, I'm sorry. God's not gonna break his track record for you, right? He is always and will always be faithful and you're not the exception to that. Praise God. Now, here's what we're gonna do. I have some thoughts, I already read this earlier, but I just want you to close your eyes and think through these questions and think of your life personally, and then I'm gonna close in, in some confession and some prayer. So again, from Eugene Peterson, he asked the question, do you think the way to tell the story of the Christian journey is to describe its trials and tribulations? It is not, but it is to name and to describe God who preserves, accompanies, and rules us. So here's the questions. Do you expect God to answer your prayers? To deliver you from your fears? To bring mercy and goodness into your life in the here and now? Do you believe that God is good, that he is safe, and that he truly loves you? One more question. Are you coming to God in your own righteousness or are you coming through the righteousness of Jesus Christ?